So I wanted to take a little time before we go into sloth and torpor to come back to a version. I'm assuming that some of you were able to read Ajahn Brahm's article on the five hindrances. And uh, there's one particular paragraph there where he talks about aversion. It just felt really succinct in how, you, how we use metta and the different ways that aversion might arise for us. So let me just read this and then we can, I'll comment a little and maybe other people have some thoughts too about how aversion has arisen for you, how you've applied some skill in seeing it, not being confused by it, abandoning it, preventing aversion from re-arising in the mind. And so Ajahn Brahm says, the Lord Buddha likened ill will to being sick, just as sickness denies one the freedom and happiness of health, so ill will will deny one the freedom and happiness of peace. Ill will is overcome by applying metta, loving kindness. When it is ill will toward a person, metta teaches one to see more in that person than all that which all that which hurts you. To understand why that person hurts you, often because they were hurting intensely themselves. It encourages one to put aside one's own pain to look with compassion on another. So we talked about that last week, that when we have ill will towards somebody, we could focus on exactly what's bothering us, or we could focus on something else about that person. So he goes on, he says, but if there is more Um, But if this is more than one can do, metta to oneself leads one to refuse to dwell in ill will to that person, so as to stop them from hurting you further with the memory of those deeds. Right? So even if we can't avoid but thinking of particular aspects of that person that relate to why we're angry, we can notice that we're harming ourselves. We can have metta for the harm we're causing ourselves, our compassion. Similarly, if it is ill will toward oneself, metta sees more than one's own own faults, can understand one's own faults, and finds the courage to forgive them, learn from the uh, learn from their lesson, and let them go. Then. If it is ill will toward the meditation object, often the reason why a meditator cannot find peace, metta embraces the meditation object with care and delight. Now just think about how many times in one of our sets we've had, maybe in a subtle way, maybe not subtle at all, ill will toward a meditation object, whatever it might be. If you're doing more of an open attention then you have a very nice, expansive aversion <laughs> to all things that are arising. Or if you're working specifically with a, you know, anchor like the breath, then you're bored with the breath. That's a form of ill will. So, what would it look to bring loving kindness to the meditation object? A sense, uh, a kind of sensitivity, or he says here, care and delight. 
For example, just as a mother has a natural metta toward her child, towards her child, so a meditator can look on their breath, say, with the very same quality of caring attention. Then it will be just as unlikely to lose the breath through forgetfulness as it is unlikely for a mother to forget her baby in a shopping mall. And it would be just as improbable to drop the breath for some distracting thought as it is for a distracted mother to drop her baby. When ill will is overcome, it allows lasting relationships with other people, with oneself, and in meditation. A lasting, enjoyable relationship with the meditation object, one that can mature into full into the full embrace of absorption. And I just really like this because uh, sometimes, you know, when we hear that loving-kindness is the antidote for aversion, it can feel like our only option is to sort of pull out this formal loving-kindness practice and start going through the traditional categories of benefactor and dear friend and neutral person and difficult person. But it needs to be much more, you know, in the moment, more natural, and more the response is really coming out of the suffering itself. A while back there was a article in the tricycle, I think, on the five hindrances, and they asked five different teachers to respond to each of the five hindrances, and Ajahn Amaro, this British Buddhist monk who's now the abbot of Amaravati, the big monastery in England, um, responded to sloth and torpor and boredom. Interesting response. He's really talking about um, yeah, just the, the boredom and how we uh, disconnect, that pain of disconnection. So the question is, the question someone asked him, when I'm going through a difficult period, I often find myself doing everything I can to avoid the source of the trouble. I tend to become apathetic and even drowsy. When can I get the courage to confront my problems? Where can I get the courage to confront my problems? And, you know, aversion and the distancing we have from aversion, it's that disconnection that often leads to drowsiness. And I'm sure you've discovered already how much of a connection there is, an overlap there is between the five hindrances. So don't feel like, you know, there's like clearly aversion in the mind or clearly greed in the mind or doubt or sleepiness or restlessness. But they're really uh, relating to each other, supporting each other all the time. So one of the common moves is when we're faced with a lot of unpleasantness and the aversion that arises with the unpleasantness, we tend to disconnect. We want to hide, we want to withdraw. But when we withdraw from life, from experience, when we disconnect, there is nothing to enliven the mind. So where does energy come from in the mind, in the heart? Where do we actually get energy or have that experience of energy? Well, it's 
it's being connected with life as it is. Because life as it is, like the Buddha says, is characterized by change. It's alive with change. It's moving. So when the mind or heart is in sync or open, in alignment with the way it is, it's in that aliveness of change, in the movement of change. It's quite enlivening to be connected with things as they are, in the same way that it's quite deadening to be disconnected from things as they are. So before we continue on with the sloth and torpor, why don't we take a few minutes and see if there's anybody who didn't get a chance to say what they wanted to say about aversion or questions about aversion. Sorry about the <laughs> aversive mind, but no, I'm full. I'll leave it open a little bit because there are a lot of people in the room. And it's hard to hear people speak if uh, that blower's gone. So any thoughts about aversion that come to mind? Any aversive thoughts? <laughs> what have you learned? You know, it's said, I don't know if there's any way to sort of make this, draw this conclusion, but I've heard this said a number of times that uh, at the time of the Buddha, culturally, greed was the predominant hindrance. But that nowadays, in the West at least, it seems maybe more aversion is, not that there isn't greed, of course, but that the most obvious presenting defilement in the mind is the different shades of aversion. So, any thoughts? Yeah, Kay. I have a, well, I've had like this personal drama going on in my life, so the timing of this discussion in our class has just been like perfect. And so I've been applying it. The only, um, and I, in this, I felt like I, I handled it probably better than I have in the past, but the dilemma lies in when I get to the point where um, I had this problem with this other person and, and they tried to then invoke the loving kindness. But then sometimes, I don't know if I sway too far then because I feel like almost I just put the conflict down and let them have what they desire. But then when I'm done, I don't feel enlivened by that. So that doesn't feel like I, you know, so I guess I could just say that to you to say, it's where can I be more skillful? Yeah, and remember that uh, it's very easy to be either afraid or judgmental of the hindrances and to see the strategies as ways of getting rid of the hindrance instead of understanding it. Because what we really want to see uh, is both that the hindrance, is, the hindrance goes away on its own and that um, ultimately it's not about being for or against, not about indulging, identified with the hindrance, or identified with the one who has to get rid of the hindrance, the one who wants not to be angry. It's neither of those. It's really just about understanding the hindrance for what it is. And, and also, in understanding the hindrance for what it is, we're also able to understand the object that's related to the hindrance. So, like, there's aversion, but that aversion is arising in conjunction with an experience, right? So can we relate to that experience 
without the need for aversion arising. So it's like the part of the practice is like physical pain, learning to be with physical pain without the mind projecting or generating aversion that arises in conjunction with the pain, or being around somebody without being aversive. But it doesn't mean that we're going to let them walk all over us. Do we need to be averse to speak straight about our needs or about the way we think something should be? Can we take care of business without being angry? Does it actually help to be angry? You know, and I mean, I think we usually find if we look carefully. I mean, initially, it, it might, you know, some people don't really start to hear the other person unless that person's angry. But, but again, it doesn't mean that we can't use even a forceful presence or a loud voice, you know, if that's what the situation calls for. But we don't have to be angry to use a loud voice even. So yeah, I think we have to be on the lookout for suppression of the hindrances and judgment of the hindrances, which is fear. You know, that would be fear, which is one of the hindrances. And to, to really remember that it's a path or a practice of understanding these forces, these patterns that obscure the peace of the mind, obscure the clarity of the mind. Other thoughts? Yeah, Dan, about aversion? Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, I think that's, for me personally, that's my uh, principal downfall, if you will, is the aversion part of slipping into be aversive. Um, however, there's <laughs> kind of a method to my madness, I think. Uh, most of my adult life, I've lived pretty heavily projecting the mind, you know, really, and, and not aware of it, and I, and I'm making a concerted effort not to be up in the mind so much. And I find the the aspect of of letting things come to me, you know, not necessarily acting on things, which has kind of an aversive feel about it. But I find that as uh, kind of an antidote for me to be be living the mind, thinking I have to do something, all these projections. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a little bit of my, my, my dilemma, if you will, the yin-yang is that there, there's, uh, at this stage of my life, it's useful not to act out and project and let things come to me. And it feels a bit more natural. Uh, the tough part about that is that's like having your first shot of whiskey at the bar because it's, it, it slips into a version pretty easily. You can just say, well, hell, I'll just wait for everything to you know, come to me. And... Um, but there's, a, but there's something you can do, like, in that waiting. Uh, this is what I really liked about Ajahn Brahm's comments about metta. Because your meditation object is the present moment. So whether you're formally sitting or just going about your day. And why not, why can't we, like, right now, have an affectionate relationship with our meditation object? So it's not waiting, because I think your point is well taken. Waiting is a kind of aversion, you know waiting to let things happen instead of forcing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but waiting, or even sometimes, you know, we'll put a nicer word on it, patience, mm-hmm. can be an aversive stance. But like right now we're sitting and we're listening to each other, 
And we can be appreciating the sensuality of sitting. We can be appreciating the, you know, the collectedness of being here together, mm-hmm. that experience of being here now together. It's like this is our baby in a way. The present moment is our baby, and we can hold it. And I think we have to, this is the tricky part of practice, but we have to cultivate a very intimate, real relationship with the present moment. We actually have to see it as a refuge, and we have to hold it like a baby, you know. And just, I think it's such a brilliant metaphor, you know, we're not going to lose, if we're walking through the shopping mall, we're not going to lose the baby. And we're not, we could be doing, you see mothers or fathers doing all kinds of things, but they don't often drop the kid. And the same thing with us. We can be a lover, an employee, of this or that, but we don't have to lose the connection with the present moment. And we can be gentle and loving regardless of all the other things that are going on around us. So I find this really useful for me. And, and I, I think it's by far the most challenging practice to do this continuously through our day. But I think one of the things that really helps is to actively create a wholesome, beautiful, affectionate relationship with the present moment. And not a given present moment, but the present moment, um, it's almost like we need the insight that there always is this now or the present moment. It's always worthy of affection, of you know, really showing up wholeheartedly. And see, this is what prevents aversion. And of course, greed and sloth and torpor and restlessness, because it's calming. You know, that continuity of being in the present, holding it, being with it, returning to it, resting with it. It's very calming for the mind. And also, when the mind is connected with things as they are, doubt tends not to arise. It's when the mind is disconnected and in thought, then we have this terrible sense that we don't know what we're doing. I had that at the beginning of this talk tonight. I don't know if it was my sit or what. I, I felt like disconnected. You know, and if you, if you take it up, if the mind sort of identifies with it, it's like it's true. You know, if we're disconnected and we freak out about being disconnected, well, the doubt, the spinning just keeps us from connecting. So it's like, yeah, we really are lost. <laughs> you know, we should be experiencing the experience of being lost because we're spinning about being lost. We're not actually connecting with the material or connecting with it, whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. We're thinking about not being connected, which is the experience of not being connected. So we should feel not connected. <coughs> so... This is just a way to, um, to work with the hindrances. And generally, you know, we've been talking about the hindrances and often during the last several weeks as learning the map. So we recognize them more quickly, recognize how they arise, what sort of situations in our life and in our meditation experiences, uh, what sort of situations tend to generate the obstacles in the mind. But I think now 
for the second half of the class, we want, want to put more emphasis on preventative strategies, like ways of being, ways of relating, ways of working with our mind, where there tend to be fewer hindrances arising with less strength. And so, for example, we could put aside the whole idea that there is this map of the five hindrances, we could put all our effort in cultivating this relationship with the present moment, an affectionate, continuous relationship with the present moment, and it would probably be as effective as any strategy for freeing the mind of the hindrances, supporting the development of samadhi and insight, as whatever else we might do. Other thoughts about aversion come to mind? Yeah, Jenna. It's more of a comment, but um, I feel like with, when, I'm pre- when I'm doing formal practice, I can actually, at very, very brief moments, connect with the present moment and everything. But I, I feel like I, my mind is, has this habit or this sort of like deep held belief that, okay, now we're done with that and there's something I've got to figure out, you know? And so it's like, a, it's, it's like I don't have faith that that really is going to work. Like, I feel like I'm really committed to this other strategy of, like, thinking my way. But there's, that my way is really the only way that anything's ever going to get done. There's something about, like, yeah, it feels, like, a little impractical to just only do that. I feel like, okay, I, I mean, I, I believe that that works because I see the evidence of it. But in my own life, I feel like I, I don't have the faith that I don't have to do all this other, like, busy work to try and figure out because this moment really isn't acceptable. Like, I have that. <laughs> I mean, that's just true, you know? And my parents did leave me at the shopping mall. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one in the crowd. <laughs> so I guess there's just no hope. <laughs> I think it's. I think it is intimidating, you know, because um, daily life being together in our neurotic ways in our culture, which is so established in greed and aversion and restlessness and dullness and doubt, it's really hard. But the the ace, you know, the thing that will overcome that is suffering is a really good teacher. And so if we're willing to acknowledge the suffering in our life, if we're actually interested in the suffering in our life, and then we'll see that continuing doing what we've always done hurts more. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.